Hi, I'm Stacia Boyd, the creative director, primary writer, and audio describer for Q Media Productions. This interpretive and audio described tour was produced in 2011 for the O'Connell Lefty Visitor Center, located at the entrance to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Cherokee, North Carolina. The Visitor Center's exhibits and audio tour tells the story of life in the mountains, from Native Americans and early European settlers through the Civilian Conservation Corps and development of the National Park. It's narrated by Mary Sarah Agliota and Tim Gelson. Welcome to Great Smoky Mountains National Park and the O'Connor Lufty Visitor Center and Museum. We're delighted to be part of your time in the mountains, and we look forward to sharing this special place with you. We created our 25-minute audio tour to guide you through the museum, as well as provide additional assistance to visitors with visual impairments through an audio-described tour. The optional audio-described version includes a second voice that provides information to help navigate and experience our exhibits. This section adds about another 25 minutes of description and directions. If you're only hearing my voice and you wanted the audio-described tour, please take the audio guide back to the desk and ask the staff to check the settings. In addition, from time to time, visitors with visual impairments will have the option to listen to additional descriptive information as well as hear the exhibit's panel text read aloud. Additional audio at each location includes a general description of the exhibit, specific description of artifacts or images specifically mentioned in the narration, and directions to the next location. Your tour begins inside the museum, at the exhibit panel titled The Smokies. You'll find it just beyond the entrance and slightly to the left. When you get there, enter the number 2 on the audio guide keypad. Starting with the visitor information desk on your left, move forward and slightly to your left about six or eight steps. Turn to your left, and you'll be facing the Smokies panel straight on. When you get there, enter the number 2 on the audio guide keypad. The keypad is ADA compliant with a raised dot on the number 5 button. 2 is directly above the 5. A large upright panel shows a silhouette of a man, his back to the viewer in what appears to be early 1900s clothing. He is overlooking a silhouetted view of the Smoky Mountains, as if he's standing on a mountaintop. Inscribed on a rock at your feet is a quote from Mr. Charlie Palmer, a Catalucci Valley resident. It reads, It was more like living in the Garden of Eden than anything else I can think of. For thousands of years, men and women came to these mountains looking for something. Beauty, opportunity, work or recreation. Whatever they were looking for, they found it here, from the earliest native peoples to the Cherokee, who still fill the region, to the European settlers and their descendants. Each group shaped not only the physical landscape, but the cultural landscape as well. And in the process of shaping the land, the land shaped the people. Its rugged beauty and richness created both opportunity and hardship. In this ongoing and dynamic relationship between people and place, a mountain culture emerged, one that continues to grow and thrive as it has for centuries. The next stop on your tour offers an opportunity to meet some of these people and experience their voices, words, and music. To hear the remaining panel text read aloud, press the green button on the audio guide keypad. The green button is two buttons directly above the five button. Continue into the round room in the exhibit titled Voices of the Smokies. When you're there... Enter the number 3 on the audio guide keypad. To reach the next exhibit, turn 45 degrees to your right with the Smokies exhibit on your left. 
Move forward about seven or eight steps. There will be mountain-style music playing in the room you're entering. The carpet under your feet will change to a hard surface in the shape of an oval, about three or four feet in diameter. It mirrors the shape of the room. The hard surface is a picture in brown and white sepia tones of an old wooden church on a small hill surrounded by tall, almost leafless trees. In the foreground, neat rows of gravestones mark the cemetery. When you're standing on the photo, enter the number three on the audio guide keypad. Shaping the landscape. For thousands of years, people have come to the Smoky Mountains looking for something. Some came to farm, others to find fish and wildlife. Some came to cut down the trees, others to look for minerals. Some came for work, and some for recreation. All these people came searching for different things found in this one place. The land and its resources have changed, and yet people still come to the Smokies to look and discover. To reach the next exhibit, turn 45 degrees to your right. With the Smokies exhibit on your left, move forward about seven or eight steps. There will be mountain-style music playing in the room you're entering. Again, the carpet under your feet will change to a hard surface in the shape of an oval, about three or four feet in diameter. It mirrors the shape of the room. The hard surface is a picture in brown and white sepia tones of an old wooden church on a small hill, surrounded by tall, almost leafless trees. In the foreground, neat rows of gravestones mark the cemetery. When you're standing on the photo, enter the number three on the audio guide keypad. In an oval-shaped room, you are surrounded by a collage of historic photographs. Some in brown shades of sepia, others in black and white. In almost every photo, rugged mountain men and women, young and old, look directly at the viewer. Husbands and wives stand shoulder to shoulder, facing the camera head-on. Ancient faces, lines carved deep into the skin, contrast with those of children, fresh-faced and eager. A quote from Mrs. Wesley Metcalf of Cock County, Tennessee, is inscribed on the wall to the left of the room's entrance. The quote reads: "In the old days, a person would borrow fire from his neighbor by lighting a shuck of corn and hurrying home before the fire went out. He lit a shuck means he went fast." Above the quote, five older women, sisters, stand side by side in handmade dresses, each a different print of small flowers. Below, a young blond-haired boy, perhaps three or four years old, barefoot, smiles as he carries a pail of water. Mountain speech resonates with common terms and phrases that help bind the community together. In this room, surrounded by historical photographs, quotes, and writings, the image of the southern mountaineer appears. In another photo, another older woman with hollow cheeks and thin hair pulled back in a tight bun smokes a pipe. Not far away. Another photo shows a father seated in a chair, holding the family dog proudly between his legs. Standing one on each side are his two young sons, who appear to be about eight and ten years old. The younger wears a newsboy cap and has his hands shoved down in his pockets. The other, his pants tucked neatly into tightly laced leather boots, holds a long rifle in one hand. The photos on the wall reveal more than men, women, and children. These were a rugged, independent, and self-reliant people. Beloved pets and hard-working farm animals are included prominently in the scenes: fiddles, banjos, and guitars, as well as the tobacco pipe and rocking chair, show people who enjoyed their leisure time as well. Moving clockwise around the room and directly across from the entrance, the photos continue. 
On the same wall, a picture of two handsome young men, Judd Williams and Jesse Birchfield, perhaps in their early twenties, strike a casual pose. Each has one ankle crossed over a knee. Judd, on the left, wears a dark jacket. Jesse wears a white shirt and tie, and is holding a banjo. Whether working or relaxing, mountain people enjoyed socializing and swapping stories. Before you move on to the next exhibit, take some time and listen to authentic voices share stories about their lives. On this same wall, directly across from the entrance to the room, four phone handsets are mounted about waist high. To the left of each handset is a list of eight audio tracks, each of a different oral history, a story told by the person who lived it in their own words. Each handset plays the same eight tracks. If you'd like to listen to the oral histories, step towards the wall and select any handset. For a list of speakers, please press the yellow button on your audio guide now. It is found two buttons above and one button to the left of the five button. If you'd like to hear the additional panel text and other inscribed quotes read aloud, press the green button on the audio guide. It is found two buttons above the five. When you're ready, your tour continues at the exhibit titled "Early People." Head out of the circular room and turn to your left. The next stop is immediately on the left side wall. When you get there, enter the number four on your keypad. If you'd like to continue your tour, exit the oval room by following the wall clockwise until you reach the end. Step out of the room and turn to your left. The early people exhibit panels will be on your immediate left. When you get there, enter the number four on your keypad. Selected panel text for Voices of the Smokies exhibit. The people who lived in the Smokies had strong ties to the land. Most preferred the freedoms and challenges of mountain life to living in a city. Their way of life was deeply connected to, and even dependent on, the mountains. You can hear these connections in their language. Mountain families had their own words for many things. They had words for special places, plants, birds, and for their own traditions. When you read their words and listen to their stories, you will discover some of the color of mountain life. Quotes are inscribed on the wall. The first is from Mark Hanna, Catalucci, North Carolina. It reads. As a wanton in that park service so bad, my brother-in-law said you'd better start at the bottom and work up. I asked this fellow for a job. He says not got much money. Says let me check and see. He checked and looked. He says, well, I'll hire you two weeks. I got thirty dollars. I got in on that two weeks and stayed thirty-one years. Another quote is from the book Reflections of the Pinnacle by Lona May Parton Tyson. It reads, sometimes the snow would blow in on the bed through the cracks. But it was good for us. It kept us healthy and ready to get out and make snowmen and skate on the creek when it was frozen over with ice or track rabbits in the snow. If you'd like to continue your tour, exit the oval room by following the wall clockwise until you reach the end. Step out of the room and turn to your left. The early people exhibit panels will be on your immediate left. When you get there, enter the number four on your keypad. To listen to the oral histories, select any audio wand handset. Lift the handset and push the numbered buttons to hear a story about life in the Smokies. The standard telephone keypad is directly to the right of the handset. The volume control is found about four inches directly above the keypad. Number one, Jonathan Woody of Catalucci, North Carolina, telling a story about the dentist pulling a tooth in exchange for fish. Number two. Wiley Oakley of Gatlinburg, Tennessee, telling a turkey shooting tall tale. Number three, 
Steve Woody of Catalucci, North Carolina, telling a story about liquor making and pheasant shooting confusion. Number four, Amos Reagan of Gatlinburg, Tennessee, talking about building trails and other work with the CCC. Number five, Aidan Carver of Smokemont, North Carolina, telling a story about an encounter with a panther. Number six, Carlos Campbell reminiscing about a trip that helped lead to the establishment of the park. Number seven, Bertha Sparrow talking about living in the house her father built in Thomas Divide, North Carolina. Number eight, Geneva Garrett talking about selling berries to the Indian school. If you'd like to hear the additional panel text and other inscribed quotes read aloud, press the green button on the audio guide. It has found two buttons above the five. If you'd like to continue your tour, exit the oval room by following the wall clockwise until you reach the end. Step out of the room and turn to your left. The early people exhibit panels will be on your immediate left. When you get there, enter the number four on your keypad. From left to right, a series of images and artifacts evokes the natural environment as well as the native people who lived in these mountains. A large image of a male white-tailed deer, his six-point antlers held high, his expression alert as he stands in a green field. In a nearby photo, a turkey with his tail feathers spread walks away from the viewer. Archaeological evidence tells us people have lived in the Smoky Mountains for more than 11,000 years. About 2,000 years ago, the Cherokee began shaping this landscape. A black and white image shows two Cherokee women wearing long skirts and long-sleeved blouses, their heads wrapped in scarves, forming clay pots with their hands. One woman sits on the ground, her legs stretched in front of her, while the other sits close by, each focusing on the task at hand. Contrary to popular belief, long before Europeans arrived, the Cherokee were already settled here. Established villages were connected by a series of trails, trading posts were established, and a thriving democratic political system was firmly in place. Seven distinct clans operated under a single council, with each clan electing their own representative. Mounted to the wall, an early axe shows a stone head lashed with leather to a wooden handle that's about 18 inches long. To the right are various drawings of early life, a well-worn path through a lush green forest. A collection of flint arrowheads, a beaded necklace, hangs on the wall. The Cherokee cleared fields for farming, thinned trees, and built permanent homes. Many of their methods, such as controlled burning, encouraged an ample supply of chestnuts and acorns. Below the images on the right, about thigh high, a circular interactive display shows the different ways native people used fire to control their environment. But perhaps the most important thing to know about the early people of the Great Smoky Mountains is that they are still here. The Eastern Band of Cherokee is woven into this community, not separate from it. In fact, throughout the region, you will find the Cherokee syllabary, the written form the Cherokee language on everything from street signs to restaurant menus. The next stop on the tour is found on the opposite wall from this exhibit. If you'd like to hear selected text from this exhibit read aloud, as well as description of the circular, interactive fire display, press the green button now. When you're ready, turn around and head over to the Mountain Farms exhibit. When you get there, enter the number 5 on your keypad. If you're ready to move on to the next exhibit, 
Turn to your left with the early people panels on your right. Move forward about four or five steps until you reach the entrance for the previous oval room. Turn to your left and step forward about two to three steps. When you're there, enter the number five on your keypad. Selected panel text from the early people exhibit. American Indians in the Smokies. Thousands of years ago, people lived in the Smokies. These early people hunted in the forests. They fished in the streams. They made trails through the mountains. They farmed the river valleys. Their descendants are the Cherokee. The Cherokee hunted or trapped many animals like deer, elk, and beaver. The earliest Cherokee hunted with an atlatl, a spear thrower. Over a thousand years before the first Europeans arrived, the Cherokee began hunting with bows and arrows. They also used blowguns to hunt small game like rabbits, birds, and squirrels. Farming. The Cherokee cultivated corn, beans, and squash together. The three sisters. They protected their crops with birdhouses made of gourds. The birds would eat harmful insects. Cherokee also grew potatoes and fruits, collected wild berries and nuts, and gathered wild herbs for medicines. Women had a respected role in traditional Cherokee society. Men were responsible for hunting, and women were in charge of farming. Cherokee were born into one of seven clans, the clan of their mother. They would be members of that clan their entire lives. Clans today continue to trace their lines through mothers. Interactive fire display. Towards the right side of the exhibit is a round display about three feet off the ground and tilted on a slight angle. On the face, a drawing shows a Native American man setting fire to underbrush. On the face of the display, it reads, Fire. The Cherokee used fire to control their environment. Turn the wheel to discover how. At the bottom of the display, closest to the viewer, if you're standing in front of it, you can turn a wheel. Each turn reveals a different image in text. First image, a drawing of a male deer running through green grass. The text reads, They lit fires to drive deer and other animals for hunting. Second image, a drawing of a large tree and a close-up image of a chestnut still on the tree. The text reads, Some trees that produce nuts grow well after a fire. Some areas of forests were burned to encourage chestnut and acorn-producing trees. Third image, a pencil drawing of river cane plants which look similar to bamboo. The text reads, River cane was burned to clear valley land for agriculture. If you're ready to move on to the next exhibit, turn to your left with the early people panels on your right. Move forward about four or five steps until you reach the entrance for the previous oval room. Turn to your left and step forward about two to three steps. When you're there, enter the number five on your keypad. On the right side of the display, a large pencil drawing image shows an old wooden trading post. Three men stand on the front porch of the building where shelves of goods are ready for sale. By the time European settlers arrived in the late 1700s, it was they who had to integrate into the community, not the other way around. And they did it in part by joining and expanding the established trade community of the Indians. To the left of the pencil drawing is a sepia tone image of a mountain man with a variety of fur pelts draped across his lap. The most prominent one has a distinctive striped tail and bandit fur markings across the face. It's a raccoon pelt. Just below the image is a touchable display of a raccoon pelt on an oval-shaped fur stretcher. 
In addition to exchanging, for example, corn for a fur pelt, Europeans also wanted other items that they couldn't make or produce themselves, like cast iron frying pans, coffee, and books. Trade expanded items to the native culture as well, who soon switched from stone hoes to iron plows, and rifles replaced bows and arrows. In the foreground of the large pencil drawing on the right is an interactive display of trade items. On each item is a large push button that lights up to reveal an image of something a farmer might barter for in exchange for the item. Starting at about waist high at 12 o'clock is an ear of corn. When pressed, a drawing of a frying pan lights up. At 4 o'clock, you'll find butter. When pressed, a bag of salt is lit. At 8 o'clock is an egg, which when pressed reveals a bag of coffee beans. At 11 o'clock, you can feel a fur beaver pelt. Press it, and a plowshare illuminates. These trading posts continued their role as places for the cultures to meet and ultimately influence one another. German and Scots Irish farmers soon learned from the Indians that here corn grew better than wheat. To hear the text from the Mountain Farms display read aloud, press the green button two rows above the five. When you're ready to continue, move to the Taking Root exhibit, just to the left of the trade panels. When you get there, enter the number six on your keypad. Turn to your left and move forward about two or three steps. On the right is a low shelf with four small flip-up tiles that you can feel with your hand. When you get there, enter the number six on your audio guide. Selected panel text for the Mountain Farms exhibit. Mountain farm families were not completely self-sufficient. Many tools and some types of food could only be acquired through trade. Families with enough surplus crops might also trade for small luxuries, like books or china. Hidden costs. Both Cherokee and white settlers traded animal hides. The demand for hides grew during the same time that a greater variety in manufactured goods were made available through trade. To satisfy these two desires, some animals, including beaver and deer, were overhunted. By the late 1800s, there were fewer animals in the Smokies to hunt because of their use as trade and food items. Turn to your left and move forward about two or three steps. On the right is a low shelf with four small flip-up tiles that you can feel with your hand. When you get there, enter the number six on your audio guide. Selected panel text from the Taking Root exhibit. The first non-Cherokee settlers came here in the late 1790s. They built their farms in river valleys where the soil was the richest. Settlers also started to farm by smaller streams. The best land was soon filled with large farms. Later, settlers had to farm on steep land. Farms were smaller and the soil was not as good for raising crops. Still, all but the smallest and poorest farms produced more than a family could use. Farms in the Smokies It would be hard to describe a typical farmstead in the Smokies. The illustration on the wall shows a valley farm. Fertile valley farms might cover several hundred acres of land and employ additional workers. Farms outside of the valleys were smaller and relied primarily on family labor. The smallest farms were found on the highest ground or at more remote locations and produced little surplus. For a description of the flip-up tiles and their contents, press the yellow button, found two rows above and one row to the right of the five button. The next exhibit is an enclosed case that contains typical farm tools and other artifacts. As you turn to your left, the large display case is directly in front of you. When you're ready, enter the number 7 on the keypad.
Directly below the large farm pencil drawings is an angled shelf. On the right, a color image of the Mountain Farm Museum. A log home with a stone fireplace sits near a small wooden building, both surrounded by lush green grass. In the foreground, a weathered paling fence, flanked by bright yellow flowers, runs beside the home. A bright blue sky rises above. The text reads, Right outside the door is the Mountain Farm Museum. The museum is a collection of farm buildings that were brought here from all over the park to be preserved. The buildings were common farm structures in the Smokies through the early 1900s, but they are not arranged to represent a typical farmstead. Be sure to visit the Mountain Farm Museum while you are here. To the left of the image are four flip-up tiles, each with a question written on top. When the tile is lifted, the answer to the question is revealed below. Moving from right to left, the questions and answers read, First tile. What was the easiest way to clear a big tree from a field? Answer. Farmers would cut the bark around the circumference of large trees so that the trees eventually died. This was called girdling. It was a quick way to clear forested areas to plant crops. Second tile. What had to be cleared from the fields often? Answer. Rocks. Plows would turn up rocks even after decades of cultivating the same field. Third tile. Why did farmers build fences? Answer. Fences were used to keep animals out of the fields. Most livestock roamed free in the mountains. Fourth tile. Which buildings were kept locked? Answer. The smokehouse stored the most valuable provisions. Farmhouses were secured with latches, but the smokehouse was one of the few buildings that might have had a lock. The next exhibit is an enclosed case that contains typical farm tools and other artifacts. As you turn to your left, the large display case is directly in front of you. When you're ready, enter the number 7 on the keypad. A triangular-shaped display case about 8 feet wide and 6 deep extends into the room. Behind plexiglass walls is a collection of farm tools and other items. Farm life moves to the rhythm of the seasons. Plant in the spring, grow in the summer, harvest in the fall. Winter is a time to prepare for the next growing season by mending tools and clearing land. In the center of the display is a hillside plow. Wooden handles extend back from a pointed blade to just about the level of a person's thigh. On the ground, it rests on an irregularly shaped iron blade. Using the handles, the farmer walked behind the plow, steering the blade while an ox pulled the blade through the soil, turning it over to prepare for planting. Most of the tools are the same as you'd find on any farm of the time. Hoes and axes are easily recognizable. Some items, like the hillside plow in the center of the exhibit, were designed to meet specific challenges found in the mountains. In this case, the moldboard, the metal blade that actually turns the ground, can be flipped over to switch sides. This way, the turned soil can always be on the downhill side of the row, no matter which way the plow was moving. A large yoke is mounted to the wall. A gently curved single piece of wood sat on top of two oxen side by side at the neck. Two U-shaped sections extend down to wrap around the work animals' necks so that they can pull a plow or a cart. Other tools used to hammer, cut, split, carry, and plant hang on the wall. But there are more tools needed than just those used for farming. Houses and other buildings needed to be built. Firewood needed to be split and food needed to be preserved and stored. A farmer's tool bin wouldn't be complete without a fro to split wood, 
a scythe to harvest grain, or a cowbell to track livestock. On the floor just in front of the plow sits an oval-shaped bowl, hollowed from a solid piece of wood and used for making bread. The dough would be mixed in the bread bowl to rise before baking. It wasn't just the tools that worked hard. People, including children, did too. Work came before education, and children contributed to the family farm in a variety of ways. In addition to planting and harvesting, children often gathered eggs and berries, fetched water, helped make soap, and anything else that needed doing. To hear a few more items in the display case described, press the green button. In front of the glass wall of the exhibit, near the taking root flip-up tiles, is a laminated book that talks more about the different chores children performed on the farm. To hear a description and the text of the book read aloud, press the yellow button on the audio guide keypad. It's found two rows up and one to the right of the five button. After you've explored the display case, when you're ready, the tour continues at the homespun to mail run exhibit. When you get there, enter the number eight. On your audio guide keypad. Continue following the outer wall of the museum on the far side of the tool exhibit case as the room curves left. The homespun to mail run display sits on a platform that extends toward you. When you're in front of the display, enter the number eight on the keypad. There are more than twenty different tools in the display, including items for farming, cooking, and making cloth. Three items in the case are a foot adze, a fro. And a flax hatchel. A foot adze is similar in shape and design to a long-handled axe. A wood handle about three feet long is attached at a right angle to a sharp metal blade. But instead, being flat like an axe, the metal head is turned on its side. The user would generally stand astride a log and swing the adze between his legs, shaping and hewing a round log into a more square shape. A foot adze was an extremely sharp tool. A person being compared to an adze was a compliment. It meant they were sharp-witted. A fro, on the other hand, was a dull tool used to, with a mallet, to split boards, kindling, and shingles. The iron blade was about eight to ten inches wide and curved on one side. On one end, a small handle comes up. The worker would place the curved end of the fro on a piece of wood with the grain and strike it with a mallet. The wood would split along the grain. A person who wasn't sharp-witted might have been compared to a fro. A flax hatchel is shaped like a brush or a small paddle and usually has a short handle. It may be about six inches by eight inches and covered with metal teeth or spikes, similar to a hairbrush. Fiber harvested from a flax plant would be pulled through the teeth by hand to thin out and straighten the fibers. Only then could the fiber be spun into linen. If you'd like additional information about the tools in the display, please ask any staff member for assistance. To continue your tour, continue following the outer wall of the museum on the far side of the tool exhibit case as the room curves left. The homespun to mail run display sits on a platform that extends toward you. When you're in front of the display, enter the number eight on the keypad. The laminated book is found in the middle of the plexiglass wall and mounted at an angle about three feet above the floor. Each page includes a black and white photo and a short piece of text. Starting with the first page, I will describe each photo and the accompanying text. Page one: A girl about twelve years old and her mother sit beside a makeshift lean-to. The mother stirs the steaming contents of a black kettle boiling over a fire. The text reads. I help my mother make soap. 
I would bring water to pour over the ashes in the hopper. We used the lye that leached out for washing. Facing page. A mother and her young daughter, about age four, stand beside an old barrel wash tub. Nearby, her other daughter, about age three, stands close to two cast iron kettles hanging above a low fire. The text reads: Every week, I help do the laundry. We would heat large pots of water for washing the clothes. Next page. Two boys about ages eight and ten walk with their father. The older boy holds the reins while a pony pulls a sled filled with chopped firewood. The text reads: We gathered chestnuts in the fall. Some we would eat, and some we sold to the store. We also collected firewood. Facing page: An old woman stands on a porch, a dark scarf wrapped around her head and tied beneath her chin. Next to her, hanging down the wood wall of her home, beans tied to strings dry in the open air. The text reads: When we harvested vegetables, we would hang some to dry in the kitchen. We made strings of leather breeches, beans. Red and yellow peppers, onions, and sliced rings of pumpkins. Turn the page. A teenaged boy sits astride a horse, clutching a sack full of store-bought goods. A stuffed white sack of what appears to be ground meal or flour is balanced on the horse behind the saddle. The text reads: We would collect eggs each morning. Sometimes we could take one to the store to trade for candy. On the facing page, a farmer stands behind his plow in a freshly turned field. His two oxen stand passively in front of the plow, waiting to be urged forward again. The text reads: In the fall, the younger children would follow behind the plow and drop seeds in the furrows. Turn the page. Two photos. One shows a large log apple barn nestled in the trees. The other shows a rack of apple slices drying in the sun. The text reads: We gathered a lot of apples in the fall. We stored some in the cellar and some in the barn. We canned some, dried some, and bleached some. Facing page, a rustic corn bin sits in stones, waiting for the next harvest. The text reads: After we harvested the corn, there would be a weekly corn shucking. The last page, the image is on the right. A young girl in her Sunday best clothes, a large bow tied in her hair, sits in front of her family home, holding a store-bought doll gently in her lap. The text reads: We made most toys ourselves, even dolls. This doll was a special present because it was store-bought, and I loved her best. To continue your tour, continue following the outer wall of the museum on the far side of the tool exhibit case as the room curves left. The homespun to mail run display sits on a platform that extends toward you. When you're in front of the display, enter the number eight on the keypad. Better tools and hard work brought bigger yields and more money to the farmer, and once again, life in the mountains continued to evolve. The display case includes two mannequins dressed in period clothing from around the turn of the 20th century, as well as tools to spin and weave yarn into fabric. In a 1928 thesis on the diffusion of culture in a relatively isolated mountain county, Ellen Engelman Black. Wrote that the greatest observable change in the area had largely been produced by Sears Roebuck and Company. People traveled more, saw how other folks dressed, and the mail order business boomed in the mountains. Often, store-bought clothing was considered the Sunday best. Of course, it wasn't only clothing people ordered through the mail. 
but also tools and other items like cooking utensils and toys. The mannequin on the left is wearing a dark-colored homemade outfit. The sleeves are plain, without cuffs or embellishments. She wears a simple blue fabric bonnet on her head that ties snugly under her chin. The fabric from the bonnet drapes down her back and over her shoulders like a shawl. Her dark skirt is gathered at the waist and drops straight to the floor. The model on the right is wearing a fine white blouse with defined shoulder pleats and wide button cuffs. Her skirt is fitted and smooth at the waist and hips. It has a decorative pleat in the front at about thigh height, as well as decorative gross grain trim encircling the lower half. The two mannequins in the display show some of the differences between machine-made and homemade clothes. The model on the right wears a factory-made blouse with fashionable pleats at the shoulder. Compare the plain wrist cuffs of the woman on the left with the more ornate and complex one on the right. The mannequins stand in front of a colorful display of homemade quilts. Some of the quilts are clearly made up of scraps of cloth cut into simple geometric shapes of triangles, squares, and rectangles. Others are more deliberate designs, using clearly matched cloth to create a repetitive pattern. Quilting was a frugal way to recycle scraps of material or worn-out clothing, as well as provide warmth on cold winter nights. But they also became an additional source of income as women started creating quilts to sell. Handmade crafts were soon to become a new commodity for the region. To hear segments of the exhibit's panel text read aloud, please press the green button on your keypad. When you're ready, the tour continues at the Whole Hog and Cash Cow exhibit, a few feet further to your left. When you reach the display, enter the number nine on your keypad. Turn to your left and continue about four or five steps. The plexiglass enclosed exhibit extends about five feet into the room. In front of the exhibit, outside of the case, you'll come to two interactive exhibits. First, a butter churn with a movable handle sticking out of the top. Then, an apple barrel with a lift-up lid. When you're ready, enter the number nine on your keypad. Selected panel text from the homespun to mail-run exhibit reads: Early mountain families had to spin cotton and wool into thread and yarn to weave it into cloth for clothing. By the late 1800s, very few families still wove cloth. Instead, most people bought cloth at the store and used it to sew their own clothing. Sometimes they bought clothing from stores or ordered it from catalogs. One exception was socks. Families spun wool yarn to knit into socks long after they stopped making their own cloth. In the early 1900s, women began to lose the skills they needed to spin, weave, and even quilt. Special schools were started to revive these crafts as a way to improve the local economy. Many women began to weave decorative coverlets to sell to tourists. Turn to your left and continue about four or five steps. The plexiglass enclosed exhibit extends about five feet into the room. In front of the exhibit, outside of the case, you'll come to two interactive exhibits. First, a butter churn with a movable handle sticking out of the top. Then, an apple barrel with a lift-up lid. When you're ready, enter the number nine on your keypad. The central figure of the exhibit is a large hog, freshly slaughtered and ready for butchering, hanging by its hind feet from the ceiling. Scattered throughout the display is ground wheat, jars of molasses and honey, fruits and vegetables, along with dried spices. As the region continued to grow and roads and railways were added and expanded, trade for goods was replaced with trade for cash. Mountain farming operations weren't backwards or old-fashioned. They were part of a wide, interconnected network. Cattle and hogs on the hoof were driven to faraway markets for sale, 
or were slaughtered, butchered, and preserved at home for family consumption. Apples and other fruit were likewise preserved at home, but apples were also a major cash crop. Sitting on the floor on the front left corner of the exhibit is a wooden barrel that's the same size and shape as one used to pack dried fruits or salted meat. It's about three and a half feet high. Hogs would be smoked or salted. Vegetables and spices would often be dried, and fruit, such as apples, may be preserved by smoking them with sulfur fumes or turning them into jams or jellies. This exhibit includes additional panels titled "Making Money." The network of roads, as well as the cost to the land. To hear this text read aloud, please press the green button. If you're ready to continue, keep moving to your left until you reach the Grinding Days exhibit panel. Once you're there, enter ten on your audio guide keypad. Turn to your left and move forward and slightly to your right about five to six steps. The next exhibit is angled into the back corner of the museum space. Once you're in front of the exhibit. Enter the number ten on your audio guide keypad. Selected panel text from the Whole Hog Cash Cow Exhibit. Title: Making Money. For early settlers in the Smokies, there were few ways to earn cash. As time passed, stores opened in the larger towns. Families could bring in their surplus to trade for things in the store. The store owner would ship farm goods great distances. Soon, people started to sell their goods for cash. Cash was needed to pay taxes. It could also be used to buy machine-made goods from catalogs. The farms were not isolated, but part of an economic network connected by turnpikes and trails. By the late 19th century, new and better roads brought access to once distant markets. Mountain families soon found they had more opportunities to earn cash. It was easy to let cows graze freely in the mountains until the fall cattle drive. Valuable resources like nuts, herbs, and wood products were taken from the forest and sold. Some families even started commercial orchards. Many families found that the land could feed more than just their basic needs. Slowly, however, the exploitation of natural resources began to take its toll on the soil and forests of the Smokies. Title: Networks of Roads. The Cherokees were the first to make trails across the Smokies. White settlers later widened these footpaths to turn them into wagon roads. Many of these early paths are still used as roads today. Logging companies built railroad lines, some of which were also turned into roads. In the late 1820s and 1830s, several roads were built to link Cades Cove to cities in Tennessee and beyond. These roads were built for wagons carrying people and goods in and out of the Smokies. Around 1825, the Cataloochee Trail, a Cherokee footpath, was widened so that animal herds could be driven across the Smokies. The road was renamed the Cataloochee Turnpike, and tolls were charged for horses, cattle, and hogs. By 1860, the road extended from North Carolina into Tennessee. Title: The Cost to the Land. Hogs were valued for their meat, sheep for their wool, and cattle for their cash value. But having stock in the mountains came at a price. All ate plants, underbrush, and trampled sapling trees. Hogs rooted around the soil and destroyed the ground cover. Driving stock across the mountains created deep ruts. The result was soil erosion, loss of native plants, and the spread of undesirable weeds. To continue your tour, turn to your left and move forward and slightly to your right about five to six steps. 
The next exhibit is angled into the back corner of the museum space. Once you're in front of the exhibit, enter the number 10 on your audio guide keypad. In the upper left of the display, a sepia toned image shows a classic water wheel, the creamy white of the water flowing over the old wooden structure, creating a veil of soft water. Corn was a staple of mountain meals, used most frequently to make bread. But first it had to be ground into meal. Farmers would bring their corn to the mill, and after it was ground, they'd leave a portion of it with the mill owner as payment. Any surplus could be sold to neighbors or transported to local markets. Mounted on the right of the display, one above the other, are two stone grinding wheels used to grind corn into meal. Feel free to touch these two granite millstones. They were an integral part of this economy and provided years of service to the community. If you'd like to listen to selected panel text read aloud, please press the green button. There was, of course, another way to turn corn into cash. Your tour continues at the exhibit directly behind you as you stand in front of the millstones. It's titled Corn in a Jar. When you get there, enter the number 11 on your keypad. To reach the next exhibit, begin facing away from the grinding wheel exhibit. Move forward and slightly to your left. About six to eight steps in front of you, directly across from the suspended hog, you'll find a raised platform with a whiskey still sitting on it. When you get there, enter the number 11 on your audio guide keypad. Selected panel text from the Grinding Days exhibit. Why were there once so many grist mills in the Smokies? Corn was the most important crop here. It grew well and was a staple in the local diet. Water power was also easy to find. Nearly every river and stream had a water powered grist mill to grind corn into meal. Some mills also ground wheat. Many families purchased flour and saved it for Sundays and special occasions. For every bushel of grain, a gallon, One eighth was left in a large toll box. Larger mills served another function. People would gather to visit with each other while waiting for their corn to be ground. To reach the next exhibit, begin facing away from the grinding wheel exhibit. Move forward and slightly to your left. About six to eight steps in front of you, directly across from the suspended hog, you'll find a raised platform with a whiskey still sitting on it. When you get there, Enter the number 11 on your audio guide keypad. A large copper container, about four feet high, with a neck narrower than its base, sits to the left. A metal pipe comes out of the top and connects it to a smaller wood barrel on the right. From the top of the wood barrel, a copper tube, twisted in the shape of a giant corkscrew, spirals down the side, then emptying into a small copper funnel, which would be placed into a jug or other container to fill with liquid. The stereotype of the mountain moonshiner is easy to picture in your mind. But it's important to keep in mind that until the 1870s, whiskey production was perfectly legal and a legitimate way to turn a crop into cash. After the federal government imposed a tax on whiskey, local farmers, who wanted to keep their profits for themselves, used their superior knowledge of the mountains to avoid the revenue man, and the moonshiner was born. A large sepia toned photo behind the display shows a man crouched down beside a still, filling a mason jar with clear liquid. A smaller photo shows two armed men, revenuers, standing beside a captured and perhaps soon to be destroyed moonshine still. Demand for whiskey increased when logging came to the hills, bringing with it large numbers of workers who enjoyed a drink now and again and had money in their pockets to buy it. 
During the Prohibition era in the early 20th century, demand spread to thirsty, but denied men and women in larger towns. To hear the panel text read aloud, press the green button. When you're ready, your tour continues at the display to the right of the still titled Population Pressures. When you're in front of the exhibit panel, enter 12 on your keypad. Turn right away from the still and take two to three steps forward. The display will be immediately on your left. When you get there, enter 12 on your keypad. Selected panel text from the corn in a jar display. Many families in the Smokies made corn whiskey, moonshine. Whiskey was an easy way to transport corn for trade or sale. Until the 1870s, making whiskey was legal. The federal government added a tax on whiskey in the 1870s, but it was hard to enforce the tax in the Smokies. Without the tax, moonshine was cheaper to sell. The Smokies became a popular place to make whiskey. In the early 1900s, logging caused a boom in the moonshine industry. Industrial logging brought thousands of thirsty men to the mountains. The workers had cash to spend. Logging also brought better road systems, so it was even easier to transport moonshine. During the years 1919 to 1933, prohibition was in place. Prohibition meant that it was against the law to manufacture, sell, or transport alcoholic beverages. Therefore, demand for illegal whiskey grew. It was easy to hide a still in the mountains, and this area of the country became legendary for moonshine. Turn right away from the still and take two to three steps forward. The display will be immediately on your left. When you get there, enter 12 on your keypad. A series of photos shows diverse mountain families. Throughout the region's history, the diverse populations of the mountains remained relatively integrated. But the Indian Removal Act led to the Trail of Tears in 1838. Most of the Indians were forced from their ancestral homes. Another photo shows a company of 23 local men from the Civil War posing in three rows in front of an old wooden building. The men are young and old, Indian and white, all look directly and resolutely toward the viewer. Soon after the end of the Civil War, more changes came to the region. The war had decimated the southern economies, while lower crop yields made it difficult to support growing families. In the post Civil War era, people were moving away to find jobs in textile mills and other industries, many of which were financed by Northern Capital. If you'd like to hear selected panel text from this display read aloud, please press the green button. To hear how the Qualatown Cherokee came to be, please press the yellow button. Soon, however, another industry was to rise in the region. Your tour continues on the opposite wall at the exhibit titled Logging, Profit and Loss. When you get there, enter the 13 on your audio guide keypad. To reach the next location, turn with your back to the population pressures display and move forward and to your right at about a 45 degree angle for about two or three steps. There is a small display case about two feet square and four feet tall in front of the exhibit panels. To the right of the case, there is an interactive display in the shape of a tree trunk. Stop just to the right of the case, then enter 13 on your audio guide keypad. Selected panel text. 
Title Population Pressures Farm families faced many new challenges by the late 1800s. Some of their farming practices left their soil less fertile. A very high birth rate meant that more people lived in the Smokies. It was harder to find good land to farm. Many people left the area to look for jobs in textile mills and other industries. The Civil War introduced Northerners to the rich forests of the Smokies. Soon, some of these Northerners would come back and bring even more changes. Title Civil War in the Smokies Slavery was not common in the Smokies, and Tennessee was home to more than 7,000 free blacks. Still, both Tennessee and North Carolina seceded from the Union after the start of the Civil War. The presence of Union sympathizers in both states added to the conflict. Raiding parties crossed state borders. Soldiers and bushwhackers stole food and livestock and destroyed the fields. Farm families struggled to survive. The bitterness lasted longer than the war. Most families started to rebuild after the war, but some simply left. To reach the next location, turn with your back to the population pressures display and move forward and to your right at about a 45 degree angle for about two or three steps. There's a small display case about two feet square and four feet tall in front of the exhibit panels. To the right of the case, there's an interactive display in the shape of a tree trunk. Stop just to the right of the case. Then enter 13 on your audio guide keypad. The Story of the Qualitown Cherokee In 1819, the Cherokee signed a treaty and had to give up almost all of their land in the Smokies. However, about 60 families received land grants along the Oconolufti River. They were also given citizenship. They became known as the Oconolufti or Qualitown Cherokee. In 1838, as a result of the Indian Removal Act, the Cherokee Nation was ordered to leave the rest of their land. More than 4,000 died on the westward march, known as the Trail of Tears. The Qualitown Cherokee were not forced to leave because of the terms of the 1819 Treaty. The Qualitown Cherokee organized their own tribal government in 1868. In 1889, they incorporated under the laws of North Carolina as the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. This exhibit includes a video on the Trail of Tears. It is not described, but does include narration. If you would like to listen to the video, the screen is found about five feet above the ground. The video loops continually. To reach the next location, turn with your back to the population pressures display and move forward and to your right at about a 45-degree angle for about two or three steps. There is a small display case about two feet square and four feet tall in front of the exhibit panels. To the right of the case, there is an interactive display in the shape of a tree trunk. Stop just to the right of the case, then enter 13 on your audio guide keypad. A cross-section of an old-growth tree about six and a half feet in diameter is mounted on the wall. Near the top, a large two-man whipsaw, almost six feet from handle to handle, spans the width of the tree. Several black and white photos are mounted on the surface of the tree section. One shows a massive logging operation with stacks of lumber next to an enormous sawmill. Timber cutting has long been a part of mountain life. However, before the era of industrial logging, it was a selective process, harvesting individual trees, but leaving the forest healthy and intact. When northern-based lumber corporations brought industrial logging to the region, the mountains themselves changed. 
In the lower photo, railroad car after railroad car loaded with freshly cut logs stretches into the distance. On one side of the tracks, a full forest. On the other, a holding pond crowded with logs. At first, the industry improved roads, expanded rail lines, and perhaps more importantly, brought jobs and paychecks. But they also brought a shift from selective cutting to industrial logging, which laid waste to entire mountains by stripping it almost entirely of vegetation. Fires were common, and soon, without the protection of the undergrowth, the soil would erode. Devastating floods followed. To listen to selected panel text read aloud, press the green button. For a description of the interactive tree stump display, press the yellow button. The audio tour continues at the new communities exhibit on the opposite wall, just past the earlier stop on population pressures. When you reach the next location, enter the number fourteen on your keypad. To get to the next exhibit. Turn to your left and move forward, and slightly to your left, about six or seven steps. You'll pass the previous panel on population pressures, and the wall will start to curve away from you slightly. At that point, enter fourteen on your keypad. Towards the right side of the logging exhibit is an interactive display shaped like a tree stump. Placing your hand on top of the stump, about three and a half feet high, run your hand down the right side. You'll find three handles protruding from the side. When pulled, the handles slide out a cross section of the trunk to reveal a sepia-toned photo and text about the impacts of logging. From the top to the bottom, a photo shows a large piece of machinery at the foot of a deforested hill. The text reads: Lumber companies used the fastest methods to remove trees, yet these methods were also the most destructive. Swing out a slice of the tree stump to learn more about the environmental effects of industrial logging. A mountain hillside littered with dead and dying logs, tree stumps, and other remnants of deforestation. The text reads: Clear cutting on steep slopes removed everything that held the soil in place and led to widespread soil erosion. Silt and debris built up in streams and caused flooding. Next image: A massive jumble of logs clogs a river. The text reads: The flood of water and logs released when splash dams were dynamited destroyed riverbanks and fish along the way. Final image: A view across the Smoky Mountain of deep ruts and mashed down or ripped up bushes. The text reads: Skidders dragged timber to the railroad tracks. Skidding also left huge trails of debris or slash along the way. The slash often led to devastating fires, usually started by sparks from steam engines. To get to the next exhibit, turn to your left and move forward and slightly to your left about six to seven steps. You'll pass the previous panel on population pressures, and the wall will start to curve away from you slightly. At that point, enter fourteen on your keypad. Industrial logging didn't only provide jobs; it created entire towns. People who didn't live on farms needed places to buy food and other items. More schools for children and churches for families sprung up beside stores, post offices, and railroad stations. The Civil War had all but decimated local economies, but now more people in the region also created more demand for locally produced food and other items. A collection of black and white and sepia images show a changing community—a community of new homes, each with a small garden lined up down a street. A group of men, some in overalls, some in suits and ties. Gather on the front porch of a post office. 
A class of about 50 school children and their teachers pose for a photo in front of a large schoolhouse. Finally, the improved infrastructure meant that not only could goods be shipped in and out, but that people could more easily come in. Tourists started to visit the area. Hotels and inns opened. People rented out rooms in their homes and sold their wares as souvenirs. To hear the panel text from this exhibit read aloud, press the green button on your keypad. There are also sample pages in a laminated book form from McGuffey's readers. For a brief description and to hear some of the text read aloud, press the yellow button. New people, new ideas, and new money all entered the Great Smoky Mountains. And one of the ideas that emerged during this time was the idea for a national park. When you're ready, the tour continues at the exhibit titled Establishing the Park on the opposite wall. When you're there... Enter 15 on your audio guide keypad. With your back to the new community's exhibit, move forward about two or three steps where you'll find a low stone, gently curving wall about 18 inches high. Above the wall, at about thigh height, a round metal railing mirrors the wall's curve. When you're in front of the exhibit, enter 15 on your audio guide keypad. Selected text from the new community's exhibit. When the logging companies came to the Smokies, they brought thousands of new jobs. Loggers had to live close to where they cut trees. They did not stay on their farms. Instead, new communities were built to house the workers. Some loggers lived in string towns, where small houses were brought in on a flatbed train. When the work was done, they moved the houses to another part of the forest. Others lived in towns built by lumber companies. These new communities had a lot of benefits. Logging towns brought new ways to earn cash. Farm families sold everything from eggs to whiskey to the loggers. Better roads meant it was easier for families to bring their goods to market. There were also new ways to spend money. Company stores did a lot of business. Better mail service made it easy to shop from catalogs. The Smokies were becoming more connected to a regional and even national economy. There are also sample pages in a laminated book form from McGuffey's readers. For a brief description, and to hear some of the text read aloud, press the yellow button. If you'd like to continue your tour with your Back to the New Communities exhibit, move forward about two or three steps where you'll find a low stone, gently curving wall about 18 inches high. Above the wall, at about thigh height, a round metal railing mirrors the wall's curve. When you're in front of the exhibit, enter 15 on your audio guide keypad. The laminated McGuffey reader samples are found approximately in the middle of the new community's exhibit wall and mounted at an angle about three feet above the floor. It includes samples from a first and sixth grade reader. On the first page, the text reads, The McGuffey Reader. Whether in a one-room log schoolhouse in the mountains or in a larger city school, McGuffey readers were the most used textbooks in 19th and early 20th century grade school classrooms. Throughout the United States, practically every school child would have read and memorized portions of these books. They were the first textbooks to be progressively graded in difficulty. Turn to the next page for a sample from a first-grade reader. On the right side of the page, a black-and-white drawing shows a young boy with a hoop and a stick standing next to a young girl sitting on the ground. Across the top of the page are five words in type and in cursive that are part of this lesson. They are girl, can, and, the, and girl. Below the drawing are the following sentences. 
I see a girl. I see a boy. I see a boy and a girl. The boy can see the girl. I can see the girl and the boy. I can see the girl. Beneath the last sentence, it's written again in cursive. To hear a sample from the sixth reader read aloud, turn to the last page of the book. On the right side of the page is a poem titled The Jolly Old Pedagogue by Arnold George, who lived from 1834 to 1865. At the bottom of the page, the following stanza is printed. It reads He taught the scholars the rule of three reading and writing and history, too. He took the little ones on his knee, for a kind old heart in his breast had he, and the wants of the littlest child he knew. Learn while you're young, he often said. There is much to enjoy down here below. Life for the living and rest for the dead, said the jolly old pedagogue long ago. The rest of the laminated pages include more samples from the McGuffey readers. Please ask any staff member for additional assistance. With your back to the new community's exhibit, move forward about two or three steps where you'll find a low stone, gently curving wall about 18 inches high. Above the wall, at about thigh height, a round metal railing mirrors the wall's curve. When you're in front of the exhibit, enter 15 on your audio guide keypad. This large exhibit runs about 18 feet down the length of the wall. The entire impression is of a work in progress. Starting at the far right, a large color photo shows the smoky mountains at sunrise, undulating shapes of mist shrouded mountains, deep in shadows, with dawn's light illuminating their peaks. A bright yellow sun hangs just above the horizon, and a clear blue sky rises above. In the foreground, silhouettes of spruce trees rise into the scene. The decision to preserve the natural beauty of the Great Smoky Mountains not only saved the beauty of the land, but the economy and way of life changed dramatically. In front of the photo, attached to the metal handrail, an interactive tube shows the timeline for the park's creation. It's titled A Park for the People. You'll have the opportunity to hear this text read aloud at the end of this audio track. As the exhibit continues to the left, one photo shows the park's dedication ceremony from 1940, with hundreds of people gathered for the event. Another image shows President Roosevelt giving the address. Nearby, the simple wooden chair the president used during the ceremony sits in a display case. The people of North Carolina and Tennessee soon realized. That the natural resource that sustained the area wasn't in harvesting the trees, but the forest itself. In the mid 1920s, through a grassroots effort, they began raising the money to purchase the land. In the early 1930s, management was turned over to the National Park Service, and soon the Civilian Conservation Corps began developing facilities. In 1934, Congress established the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It's important to remember, though, that this national treasure. Would not have been possible without the sacrifice of the people who already lived here. Over a thousand families had to be relocated. In some cases, the buyouts were welcomed. A few older residents were able to stay in their homes for the rest of their lives. But for others, the decision to sell was hard to accept. We can't forget this national park cost more than money. People sacrificed their family homes so that today we can experience the majesty of the Smokies. To hear selected panel text read from the Establishing the Park panels read aloud, press the green button two rows above the five. To hear the timeline of the park's creation text read aloud, press the yellow button. The yellow button is found two rows above and one row to the left of the five button.
Continuing left, past the chair display, three additional panels offer more information on the army of workers brought to the region through the Civilian Conservation Corps. For a description of these panels as well as the text read aloud, please press the red button. The red button is found two rows above and one row to the right of the five button. Today, the park belongs to the people of the United States to preserve and protect. The next stop on your tour is titled A Changing Landscape. When you're ready, continue to the left and follow the outside wall of the museum to the next exhibit. When you arrive, enter 16 on your audio guide keypad. To continue your tour, move all the way to the far left end of the Establishing the Park exhibit, turn 90 degrees to your left, and continue forward about four to five steps. On your right, you'll find three exhibit panels. When you get there, enter 16 on your audio guide keypad. Selected panel text from Establishing the Park. The logging industry brought trains to the Smokies, the trains brought tourists. Once the trees were cut, the logging jobs would leave. But if the trees were saved, the tourists would keep coming. This was one of the main reasons why land in the Smokies was eventually set aside as a national park. Panel title Save Our Mountains. People had been coming to sightsee and vacation in the Smokies for decades. The logging trains made it even easier for them to visit the area. Local families already had many ways to make money from tourists. They fed them, rented rooms, and led fishing trips. They also sold small craft items as souvenirs. Asheville, North Carolina was another successful example of how to profit from tourists. Local boosters hoped the park would be even bigger because it would bring national publicity. They also wanted federal money to pay for new roads in the area. They believed a national park would provide a steady source of income and other improvements. To hear the timeline of the park's creation text read aloud, press the yellow button. The yellow button is found two rows above and one row to the left of the five button. If you prefer to continue your tour without listening to the timeline, continue left past the chair display. There, three additional panels offer more information on the army of workers brought to the region through the Civilian Conservation Corps. For a description of these panels as well as the text read aloud, please press the red button. The red button is found two rows above and one row to the right of the five button. To continue your tour, move all the way to the far left end of the Establishing the Park exhibit, turn 90 degrees to your left, and continue forward about four to five steps. On your right, you'll find three exhibit panels. When you get there, enter 16 on your audio guide keypad. At the far left of the Establishing the Park exhibit, three panels present information on the Civilian Conservation Corps, also referred to as the CCC, and their importance in establishing the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The first panel on the right is titled The CCC and Park. The panel text reads President Franklin D. Roosevelt created the Civilian Conservation Corps in 1933. The CCC was a way to provide work for unemployed young men. The jobs were designed to conserve or improve natural resources across the country. The CCC enrolled hundreds of thousands of men who planted billions of trees. Black enrollees were completely segregated, and none were employed in the Smokies. American Indians enrolled in a separate division, the Indian Emergency Conservation Work, IECW. The IECW hired hundreds of members of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians to work on projects on tribal lands. 
The CCC did more than just plant trees. CCC enrollees built many things in the park: fire roads and towers, trails and bridges, park headquarters, and other buildings. Much of the way the park looks today is a result of the work of the CCC. The center panel is titled "An Army of Workers." The main image shows a black and white photo of a long double row of canvas army tents, each large enough for several men. Above, an inset drawing shows a map of the park with camp locations spread throughout the park. The panel text reads: "CCC enrollees were organized into camps of 200 men who lived by army rules." Within the first month of the program, there were five CCC camps in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The Smokies ultimately had more than twenty CCC camps. The location of the camps are shown on the map. This panel also includes a video screen with a continuous slideshow of past CCC projects in the park. This video has no narration. The final panel on the left has two sections. The first is titled "Opportunity in Hard Times." An inset sepia-toned photo shows the interior of an unoccupied metal Quonset hut bunkhouse. Another photo shows a uniformed camp baseball team seated in three rows for the team portrait. The text reads: "The CCC was a boon for unemployed young men across the nation. In the Smokies alone, the CCC gave jobs to thousands of young men. Most of them were not local, although local men were also hired." The CCC also benefited the local economy in other ways. CCC enrollees spent money in the towns around the park. The park also brought tourists to the area, even during the depression. The park and its surroundings might look very different today were it not for the CCC. The last section is titled "What Happened to the Camps." The text reads: The start of World War II brought the end of the CCC. Most of the camps in the park closed in 1942. One camp found a new purpose as a work camp for conscientious objectors or COs to the war. Most of the COs built trails, made signs, fought fires, and did a lot of other maintenance chores throughout the park. Their work in the Smokies protected and even enhanced the park during the war. To continue your tour, move all the way to the far left end of the establishing the park exhibit. Turn 90 degrees to your left and continue forward about four to five steps. On your right, you'll find three exhibit panels. When you get there, enter 16 on your audio guide keypad. Towards the right side of the exhibit, attached to the metal handrail, is an interactive display titled "A Park by the People for the People." The display includes a barrel-shaped device with a turn wheel on the right side. When you turn the wheel, a timeline of the park's creation is revealed. On the face of the display, the following text reads: "The idea to form a national park in the Smokies began in the late 1890s. It took decades of work to achieve that goal. When the first national parks were created in the West, the land was already owned by the federal government. One of the biggest challenges in the Smokies was to buy the land from the corporations who own the forests and from the people who called these mountains home." When you turn the wheel, the following text reads: Starting in 1923, Anne and Willis P. Davis of Knoxville returned from a trip to Yellowstone and asked, "Why can't we have a national park in the Smokies?" 1925, supporters begin to raise millions of dollars to purchase land for a park in the Smokies. Four million dollars comes from the states of North Carolina and Tennessee. 
and about $600,000 from individuals, including school children. However, the campaign falls short of its goal. In 1927, the purchase of the first major tract of land for the park, 76,507 acres from the Little River Lumber Company, is completed. 1926. Congress authorizes the creation of Great Smoky Mountains National Park, but initially allocates no money to purchase land. At least 150,000 acres of land would have to be turned over to the federal government before the National Park Service could manage it. 1927. John D. Rockefeller Jr. pledges $5 million of matching money to buy land for the park. He asks for a plaque honoring his mother to be placed in the park. 1931. J. Ross Eakin is appointed the first park superintendent, just months after the park reaches the 150,000 acre mark. Eakin arrives from Glacier National Park and will oversee the park's most formative years. 1933. The first Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, enrollees arrive in the Smokies. 1934. On June 15, 1934, Great Smoky Mountains National Park is established by Congress. 1940. President Franklin D. Roosevelt formally dedicates the park in a ceremony at Newfound Gap on September 2, 1940. To continue to the Civilian Conservation Corps panels, continue left about six to eight steps past the chair display. For a description of these panels as well as the text read aloud, please press the red button. The red button is found two rows above and one row to the right of the five button. To continue your tour, move all the way to the far left end of the Establishing the Park exhibit, turn 90 degrees to your left, and continue forward about four to five steps. On your right, you'll find three exhibit panels. When you get there, enter 16 on your Audio Guide keypad. A Changing Landscape Panel Text It takes a lot of work to maintain this land as a national park. Many things can change the balance of nature here. Even people who never visit the Smokies can have an impact. Some of our actions are good for the park. Thousands of volunteers give their time each year to help park rangers. Some of our actions may have an effect that is never fully understood. The park staff tries to limit the harm caused by known threats to park resources. The challenge is how best to protect the park from multiple threats. The first panel to the right is titled Unwelcome Exotics. On the right side of the panel, about four and a half feet above the floor, a video about the latest threat to the park from an invasive species is available. The presentation isn't described, but does include narration. To start the video and listen to the audio, press the round button found about two inches below the center of the screen. A portion of the panel text reads The Smokies are home to an amazing number of plants and animals. There are more than a thousand types of flowering plants and hundreds of kinds of birds. There are also many different species of trees, fish, and other animals. Part of the job of managing the park is to control the threats to native plants and animals. The center panel is titled A Balancing Act. A portion of the panel text reads Managing the park means making choices. It also means changing how things are done based on new resource information or a better understanding of the needs of native species. Sometimes direct actions by park staff can protect the resources of the Smokies, but some threats are indirect and therefore more challenging to manage. You can help.
No matter how near or far you live, everyone can play a role to preserve the diversity of the Smokies and protect this special place. Another segment of text refers to the rainbow trout described in the previous audio tour track. It reads. In the 1930s, the CCC built hatcheries to stock streams with rainbow trout, but rainbow trout are not native to this area. Brook trout is the only native trout species. Rainbow trout thrived, having more offspring and growing faster than brook trout. This crowded brook trout out in some areas. The hatcheries closed when the CCC program ended. But all non-native fish stocking did not end until 1975, when the threat to native trout was fully understood. The panel on the left is titled "Protecting Park Resources." The panel includes a short video about resource management projects in the park. The video is not described, but it is narrated. To start the video and listen to the audio, press the small round button located about three inches below the center of the screen. A portion of the panel text reads. Imagine trying to fix a car engine when you can identify about 20% of the parts and how they work together. That is what it is like for park managers in the Smokies. Before they can best decide how to protect park resources, they have to determine what is here and learn how different species interact with one another. Another section of text on this panel refers to the various historic buildings and artifacts found within the park. It is titled "Priceless." The text reads. Once the park was established, managers had to make decisions about what to do with the many buildings that stood within its borders. Many of the log cabins were restored, reflecting a mostly 19th-century lifestyle. Most newer structures were torn down. The remaining buildings are part of our heritage. Treat them with respect. The skills, tools, and big trees needed to construct log cabins are hard to find. If they are damaged or defaced, they often cannot be accurately repaired. In addition, on the center panel, an interactive horizontal cylinder can be turned to find out more about what harms the park and what you can do about it. To listen to this text read aloud, press the yellow button found two rows up and one row to the left of the five button on your audio guide keypad. If you're ready to conclude your tour and return your audio guide, go ahead and enter seventeen on your keypad. A changing landscape panel text. It takes a lot of work to maintain this land as a national park. Many things can change the balance of nature here. Even people who never visit the Smokies can have an impact. Some of our actions are good for the park. Thousands of volunteers give their time each year to help park rangers. Some of our actions may have an effect that is never fully understood. The park staff tries to limit the harm caused by known threats to park resources. The challenge is how best to protect the park from multiple threats. The first panel to the right is titled "Unwelcome Exotics." On the right side of the panel, about four and a half feet above the floor, a video about the latest threat to the park from an invasive species is available. The presentation isn't described, but does include narration. To start the video and listen to the audio, press the round button found about two inches below the center of the screen. A portion of the panel text reads. The Smokies are home to an amazing number of plants and animals. There are more than a thousand types of flowering plants and hundreds of kinds of birds. There are also many different species of trees, fish, and other animals. Part of the job of managing the park is to control the threats to native plants and animals. The center panel is titled "A Balancing Act." A portion of the panel text reads. 
Managing the park means making choices. It also means changing how things are done based on new resource information or a better understanding of the needs of native species. Sometimes direct actions by park staff can protect the resources of the Smokies, but some threats are indirect and therefore more challenging to manage. You can help. No matter how near or far you live, everyone can play a role to preserve the diversity of the Smokies and protect this special place. Another segment of text refers to the rainbow trout described in the previous audio tour track. It reads In the 1930s, the CCC built hatcheries to stock streams with rainbow trout, but rainbow trout are not native to this area. Brook trout is the only native trout species. Rainbow trout thrived, having more offspring and growing faster than brook trout. This crowded brook trout out in some areas. The hatcheries closed when the CCC program ended. But all non native fish stocking did not end until 1975 when the threat to native trout was fully understood. The panel on the left is titled Protecting Park Resources. The panel includes a short video about resource management projects in the park. The video is not described, but it is narrated. To start the video and listen to the audio, press the small round button located about three inches below the center of the screen. A portion of the panel text reads, Imagine trying to fix a car engine when you can identify about 20% of the parts and how they work together. That is what it is like for park managers in the Smokies. Before they can best decide how to protect park resources, they have to determine what is here and learn how different species interact with one another. Another section of text on this panel refers to the various historic buildings and artifacts found within the park. It is titled Priceless. The text reads, Once the park was established, managers had to make decisions about what to do with the many buildings that stood within its borders. Many of the log cabins were restored, reflecting a mostly 19th century lifestyle. Most newer structures were torn down. The remaining buildings are part of our heritage. Treat them with respect. The skills, tools, and big trees needed to construct log cabins are hard to find. If they are damaged or defaced, they often cannot be accurately repaired. In addition, on the center panel, an interactive horizontal cylinder can be turned to find out more about what harms the park and what you can do about it. To listen to this text read aloud, press the yellow button, found two rows up and one row to the left of the five button on your audio guide keypad. If you're ready to conclude your tour and return your audio guide, go ahead and enter 17 on your keypad. In the lower center of the Balancing Act panel, An interactive rotating drum tells what people can do today to help protect the park. A wheel on the right side rotates the drum. The text reads Did you know air pollution also harms the water? Air pollution causes acid rain, which changes the pH or acid balance of the streams. Streams that are too acidic are harmful to trout, salamanders, and other aquatic life. Think about it. People camp overnight in the Smokies to enjoy the moonlit views and the natural sounds that fill the air. But increases in development, airplanes flying overhead, and car and motorcycle traffic add artificial light and noise that change the experience of night. The park is monitoring both the night skies and noise levels. The data will ultimately help address problems of noise and light pollution. Turning off the light when you don't need it seems like a simple thing to do. But it can have a big effect, especially when millions of people do it. 
Burning fossil fuels like coal, oil, and gas creates airborne pollutants. Wind carries these pollutants from sources near and far to the Smokies, where the mountains trap them. Unlike the mist that gave the Smokies their name, pollution is a whitish haze that dulls the view of the landscape. Power plants, cars, and factories also emit compounds that are converted by sunlight into ozone, a colorless gas that is unhealthy to breathe. Ozone not only makes people sick, it also injures trees and other plants. So reducing emissions at power plants and factories, as well as reducing our use of power, will help the Smokies and you, the visitor, stay healthy. If you're ready to conclude your tour and return your audio guide, go ahead and enter 17 on your keypad. From in front of the last display panel on the left, titled "Protecting Park Resources," turn to your left and move forward about six or seven steps. Then turn 90 degrees to your right and continue forward about six or seven more steps. The surface under your feet will change from carpet to a hard surface. The information desk will be on your right. On behalf of the National Park Service, thank you for visiting the Econolefty Visitor Center in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. We offer a variety of ways to experience our history, culture, and nature. Please ask at the information desk about the many opportunities to get to know not only the park but the people. We'd also like to thank Boogertown Gap for contributing the authentic mountain music to our audio tour. We hope you enjoyed it. Like the mountains themselves, this dynamic community is still changing and evolving. We are proud that our heritage is still here. The Cherokee and the Mountain people are as much a part of our modern life as our history books, and visitors have an important place here too. Beyond tourism, the Smoky Mountains, the place, and the people are part of your heritage too. It is part of the rich fabric of American history and modern life. Like a quilt, each individual piece stitched into a seemingly random pattern, when taken as a whole, it reveals a beautiful and practical work of art. Thank you for visiting. This has been a Q Media production.